0: chapter 4 verses 1 through 10. If you're using the Bible in the Purach, that's on page 951. So James 4, 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. That the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners and purify your hearts you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well when I first got to uh my church up in big rapids where i was before i came down here i had four deacons uh on the board it was a first baptist of so we were classic uh, deacon board structure there and uh, it was it was a strange experience uh because two of those deacons had had bariatric surgery which is like the surgery where they either remove your stomach or dramatically you know reduce its size so that you can't eat as much and you lose weight and uh this is an awkward story, but it's kind of an awkward sermon text. So that's why we're going there. And I got to know one of the guys and, and, and asked what that experience was, uh, experience was like for him. <laughs> and he, he told me about this doctor's appointment where the doctor sat down with him and leveled and said, if you keep eating and living the way you currently are, you will be dead in two to three years. He was like in his 40s or something. It was a huge wake-up call for him. The doctor pretty plainly said, you will die unless you dramatically reorder your life and develop a radically new set of habits. And I guess in order, I don't know all the details of how it works, but he had to like record everything he ate for like six months and do this workout routine. You have to do all this stuff leading up to to the, the, to, to the actual surgery. And I tell that story because I basically, I think that's what James is doing for us here in our teaching text, is that without a dramatic reordering of our lives, developing radically new set of habits, we will be destroyed. It's a stark warning and rebuke. Like everything in me right now wants to crack a joke or say something self-deprecating. But like, guys, I was in tears this week, wrestling with this text and trying to Think about like, what does it mean to be faithful to what James is saying here? What does it look like to preach not as a hypocrite? Because I'm a mess with a lot of these things. We need to hear this intense rebuke that in warning that James is sharing with us. So if you're not uncomfortable or a little bit messed up after this morning, then either I've really bombed or we're, we're not really hearing what God is saying. This is, while this is primarily a bold prophetic rebuke to the people, God's people in the church, it's, it's very much rooted in God's love and grace. It's the kind of letter that an intensely loving, faithful husband would write to his wife who just cheated on him with another guy. It's it's the mom yelling at her child, toddler, running towards a busy road. Like, what what does your language look like? What's your tone like? What is the urgency like? Because there's a ferocious, zealous side of God's love that would say, you are to love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Everything that you are. I want all of you. I'm worthy of all of you. You were bought with a price. Everything you have and are is a gift for me. It flows out of my being. And apart from me, you have no good thing. Nothing will satisfy you apart from me. This is what God is calling us to zealously, jealously, with, with dire urgency because of what is on the, on the lines. So let me pray. For our time here and we'll get in get into it oh father would you come holy spirit would you come open our open our hearts to your word in the name of jesus would you uh just protect us from anything that's unhelpful that i might say and you're in your mercy and your kindness would you lead us to repentance would specific things be brought to our minds uh, in the spirit that we need to uh, respond with and repent of. Oh, Father, would you hold us this morning as we come before your word? In Jesus' name, amen. We're calling this teaching series through James. Uh, we're going straight through the book. That's why we got to this passage, not because we picked it. Uh, wholehearted devotion to Jesus, because right out of the gate in chapter one, the first few verses, James sets this paradigm where he's contrasting wholeness or perfection, completeness, in a, a double minded or fractured soul, and that, 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 the idea of perfect is not this like rigid kind of like tight morality though that's kind of included in there, but instead it's this picture of a complete like if, if something is perfect, that means it's not missing anything or it's totally together. And the, the Bible project has a, a helpful grap- graphic. I think I have a picture of it. Uh, th- this idea that teleos is the Greek word there it's repeated seven times in these five chapters. It's a major theme and, you, and I love the image there of like the whole person and then the all fractured inconsistent person and that's contrasted with the, the Greek word dipsychos, which literally means double soul having this like fractured broken heart you know that, that chases all these different things and we translate it double minded uh, which is also in our text this morning James is repeating this, this theme of like purify your hearts you double minded Bible showing us what it means to be human uh, and what the work of sanctification, what the work of growth actually looks like, which is about becoming whole, more fully united under God and his word. In the word word of the psalmist in Psalm 86, he says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I love that because it's this idea of obedience, of being taught and led by God, and then we see our hearts united under God in in holy reverence to, to God. We see God unite all the broken, fractured pieces of ourselves. The, the part that wants to display God's goodness through sexual purity and singleness versus the unhindered sexual ex- expression that's so celebrated uh, in our world. The part, that wants, part of me that wants to be generous with money uh, so we show our childlike trust in God being our provider. And then the part of me that wants to stockpile money so I feel safe and secure. The part that wants to be this patient, kind parent. And then the other part that wants to control and manipulate my kids so everybody's impressed with how good my kids are. We, we have these, like, fractured parts of us. And I recap that today because today our text is is about our fractured, divided hearts. We see it right in the text. And again, to riff off the, the Bible project, they, they have a little box for this passage, and it shows the heart like this. Did it make it to the slideshow? Yeah, it's a divided heart. It was like, literally a puzzle piece that we need God to bring together. And my prayer this morning is that we would experience this three-part movement as we go through this text. The first part is that
0: just
1: we feel the full, full blow of James's blistering rebuke and warning, and that that would lead us to godly grief. This, this term that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians, I think, is really helpful for our time this morning. Uh, <clears throat> in 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10, uh, 2 Corinthians is—I uh, went to seminary, so I can tell you this. It's after 1 Corinthians. 1 uh, Corinthians uh, was, a, was a pretty scathing rebuke of the church in Corinth. And so this is the kind of follow-up letter. And Paul writes this. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, 1 Corinthians, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you. That though the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Fun fact, salvation can also mean healing in Greek. It leads to healing, salvation, without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So that's the first thing, is that we would just feel this rebuke from the Holy Scriptures, from the Word of God, that would lead us to a godly grief. And then that godly grief, this is the second thing, would lead us uh, to repentance, to respond with a very practical, active repentance and settled ways in our days and then that that the this repentance played out in these practical ways in our lives would lead us into more grace but god gives more grace smack in the middle of our scary passage here our text today shows the three enemies of wholehearted devotion to jesus and that's why it's so dependent so intense like if something is threatening someone you love how do you talk about it? how do, how do moms care for their kids when they're running towards the street it's intense it's not calm and gentle when like death is on the line and so our text calls us to parts of our lived reality of like what it means to live in reality according to scripture that will destroy us unless we hear the teaching of scripture and respond like our souls and our lives depend on it the three enemies of wholehearted devotion to jesus are the flesh the world and the devil this is the unholy trinity, the enemies of our lives. The, 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 this unholy trinity is what Jesus' followers have sought to fight for 2,000 years. And I was kind of drowning this week because we could do an entire series on each one of these enemies. and uh, But we can't, obviously. So this is just kind of like a survey. And these three components, they work together to keep our souls fractured and divided, to keep us double-minded like this. The devil spreads deceitful ideas that appeal to our disordered desires, which is the flesh, that are then normalized in a sinful society or the world. Again, we could unpack this so long, so much. Uh, the devil spreads deceitful ideas that appeal to our disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. And it's a mercy, a gift of God's God that He give, gives us his words to show us these. So let's dive in. Uh, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1 what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you is it not this that your passions are at war within you so right here we see the fractured divided heart we have passions desires that are at war within you can you relate to what he's describing like competing desires like you're at hopcat and you want to be in shape for the beats the next day and you also want all the chronic fries which is a silly example, but we have different parts of our soul. The healthy part, want to be fit, want people to think we're attractive, and then the part that wants to eat for comfort or whatever. This is what it means to be fallen in our world. Our passions are at war within us. And the chronic fries analogy might, sorry, that's like unhelpful, because it's probably too tame for what James is getting at here. This isn't just like go on a diet or whatever. Look look at what he says in verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James gets into the primary consequence of our warring passions and desires, which is the destruction of our relationships with God and with others. Say, for example, that what you most desire is peace. Just a calm, quiet life where people leave you the heck alone, except maybe when you want them around, and no one's problems affect you. How, how might we respond if that's what we desire? When someone's drama invades our life, anger, wrath, avoidance, this cold shoulder, closed off dismissal. James is tracking with what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. We might, Lord willing, manage to not actually kill that person who invades us with their drama, but we might wish them dead in our minds or call them fools or diminish their worth as an image bearer so we don't have to mess with them or we don't feel any obligation to forgive them or, or whatever. You know, maybe it's not peace you most crave, maybe it's approval. Other people to approve of you and how hard you work. So you work too much. And then you're fighting and quarreling with your wife for how, uh, how little you are around or something like that. There'd be tons of different examples. And at the end of our text, James gives us a, a, another example where he says in verse 11 and 12, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother ju- or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver, a judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? When you see judge there, think condemn, condemnation. We condemn our brother, belittle our brother, excuse uh, to excuse the reason why we don't need to engage or forgive them. So we see the, these desires playing out and breaking our relationships where they combat different desires i want to love my family but i also want everyone at work to think i'm awesome what you know whatever it is but one of my top five favorite truths of scripture i haven't actually made a list but this one will definitely be on it is that god is pro-desire following jesus is distinct from you know other eastern religions that would say the problem is desire itself transcend desire and evil and suffering will go away but the Bible teaches that God has given us desires. He's wired them into our being as humans. And then what? He offers himself as the one to meet those desires. So desire itself is not evil. Desire becomes evil when we seek to get our desires satisfied apart from God. This is what you see in the temptation. Adam and Eve, where they went to the fruit for all the things God should give them. What you see in Jesus' temptation temptation. Desire becomes evil when we seek to get our desires satisfied apart from God. And this is right in our text. What does James say next? Look at verse 2. You desire. Wait for it. There it is. You do not have because you do not ask. He's not saying don't want those things. He's saying ask me for them. The reason why you don't have them is you're going to the wrong place. You need to ask me for them. The problem is not the desire. It's who you're asking. If you're asking work to make you feel uh, significant, if you're asking money to make you feel safe, then you will destroy everyone around you pursuing those things. But God is a good father, and you can ask him for security, for approval, for a sense of worth, all those things. Take your desires to God. You do not have because you do not ask God. How much prayerless effort do we exert before we humble ourselves and ask God to do what only he can do? There's even more grace. Look at verse three: "You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions." Now, this seems a little prickly, like it might like a rebuke, and I suppose it is at some level, but it's actually a sweet, sweet mercy of God to not just like write us a blank check for anything that we ask him. The Bible would, would actually say, "That's the wrath of God. Romans one says, "It's the wrath of God to give us over to our sinful desires." So it might be the loving grace of God that He would allow your job to fall apart under your feet so that you are freed from the lie that it will satisfy you. This is me telling my son Johnny he can't have a sharp knife. He can ask freely all he wants, he can desire all he wants, but saying yes would give him big owies. This good news, this is this is good news because it means we can ask like Johnny openly freely for whatever it is that we want. And the idea is that we grow in maturity and be like, why do I want this? What is my heart looking for in this? Is this something I should want? Is this something that God can meet? <coughs> Excuse me. And we can trust God that he won't give us something that will destroy us. He won't give us something to use on our sinful passions that would just more and more enslave us to them. So how do we fight the flesh? How do we fight sinful desires we ask god for what we want we cultivate lives where we can be alone with god in silence and solitude quietly letting the spirit do what the psalmist says search me and know me try my anxious heart and see if there's any offensive way in me because we know that that god loves us if we take desires that are wrong and twisted to god he's not going to throw us out he died for us so we can approach him with boldness like children and we can let him refine those desires. And in community, we confess our fleshly desires to our brothers and sisters. We invite trusted Jesus followers into what we desire and let them speak the truth of how the gospel truly meets that desire. Let's look at the next enemy of wholehearted devotion to God in verse four. You adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Well, friends, the Bible just called us adulteresses. The Greek word there is just female. It's just adulteresses. That's plural. He just called us unfaithful wives. Drew the line in the sand and on one side of the line there's wholehearted devotion to Jesus, faithfulness to Jesus, and on the other side there's anything less than that, which is the side of adultery. And this isn't like James' hot new take on sin or anything like that. He's just playing on a theme that's all throughout the Old Testament. So, hold on tight for this one. This is Ezekiel 16, verses 35 through 38. Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them, therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved, all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them, that they may see your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. This is the word of the Lord. James is saying that friendship with the world, with other lovers that we have offered to us by the sinful society that we live in make us an enemy of God. This should devastate us. But I also hope that we can hear God's ferocious love for us in it. Like, what's worse than, like, an angry husband when his wife cheats? Like, a husband that doesn't care. It's because he loves us so deeply that he was literally willing to die for us, that he could be so zealous, so jealous for us, even in our horries, after the world, after getting our needs met in other places. Like a loving husband seeing his wife go to other men who would use and abuse her, this devastates God because it's destructive to us, to the one that he loves, to his people that he's covenanted with. I don't know if you're as uncomfortable as I am right now, but if you are, you might want to know, like, what what is the world? What is friendship with the world? How do I not be an enemy of God? The Bible's teaching on the world is pretty rich. On the one hand, God so loved the what that he gave his only begotten son? The world. God created the world. But on the other hand, because sin has entered God's perfect created world, it's now ruled by the devil, the prince of this world. We see Jesus unpacking the idea of the world and how his disciples relate to it and his prayer for us, for you and I, in John 17. Jesus says, I have given them, us, your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world sanctify them in your truth your word is truth oh man i want to preach this one really bad you got the evil one you got lies you got truth so much good stuff in here but we've been called out of the world by god this is all over scripture the world represents the society that the, the idea the concept in scripture is the society that would normalize ways of living contrary to god contrary to the way of jesus Where meeting our own desires apart from god is normal respectable admired because of the lies that the devil has sown and every single civilization throughout human history has done this in certain areas and it's so easy to look in the past and point fingers at other cultures uh, but it's very hard to see this in our own culture and even like within specific churches or families you know we kind of have oh, our particular brand of acceptable worldliness but it, it's it's like you know smog in LA like if you're standing up on the hill outside the city it's just this like cloud of settling over the town, but if you're down in it, it looks, you don't see it. Sometimes for church folks, it can be easy to point to worldly things that we don't do, uh, that we're openly against, you know, like abortion or certain sexual lifestyles. But the thing is, when you start exposing aspects of worldliness, it's always offensive. It always comes for us. It always knocks at our own door because it's normalized. It's not something that we're aware of, that we're like, consciously doing in the face of God is something that we, we've just kind of been like swept along away from God in the, in the river of what the world says is normal and acceptable. And I think for us as an influ, affluent church in West Michigan, um, you can just chew on this, take it or leave it. It's stuff like our relationship to money, the myth of the upward mobility, comfort and security are what we should expect and deserve if we do life right or if we obey God. Like, would we ever consider following Jesus to the point where we're actually in danger? Like, we're actually at risk. We're less impressive at our high school reunions. We're less comfortable. Henry Allen writes about the downward ascent of Christ, that the the way of Jesus stands over and against our middle-class upward mobility. If we follow Jesus, we will follow him. We, We sang this this morning. We will identify him. If the cross brings transformation, Let me be crucified with Jesus, dying to ourselves, exposing ourselves to the world's scorn and hate. And not in the U.S., but in lots of other places in the world, even death. And the reason I rag rag in particular on upper mobility is because I think it's exactly the opposite of the way out. It's the exact opposite of of what James says next. In verse 6, he says, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. God gives more grace, but only to the humble. And I think upward mobility at its core is this pride and entitlement. I work for this. I deserve this. This is me. I'm going to, to make my life go up and to the right. God is a jealous God who calls his wife back. He's the father in the prodigal son parable, searching the horizon to see if his son will humble himself and return in repentance and draw near. James points out the grace of God and describes the way it is received or experienced. It's through humility. And terrifyingly, he says God opposes the proud, opposes those who do not draw near, Opposes, though, who spend their lives working to be self-sufficient, comfortable, safe on their own, who do not ask him to meet their desires, but with prayerless effort, scheme, and fight, and quarrel to get their needs met. God opposes them. That's a horrifying thought. Friend, if you live your life in prayerless effort, God might be opposing you. God gives more grace to those who, in humility, realize their total inability to meet their own desires. And so James calls us to submit ourselves, therefore, to God. The world nor- normalizes schemes and lies and strategies uh, of a life apart from God. So we fight worldliness by submitting ourselves to God. We look at what he says in the Bible and we say, yes, we say, okay. So, for example, I know there's a bazillion questions as an example, but straight in James, it says, true religion is what? Visiting widows and orphans in their affliction. He also says being unstained from the world. I want to preach that too. But spent visiting the poor and the marginalized in the world it, and being with them in their affliction. What does that mean? How do, how do we do that? Like there's, there's a lot of like wisdom and practical questions to ask there. But maybe on the other side, how do we do that as middle class West Michiganders? What parts of our lives that the world says is normal keep us from obeying what the Bible says here? Am I too busy with work, too busy with my kids' activities, too busy having fun all the time to obey what the Bible says, which is be with the poor and marginalized in their affliction? Now, none, you know, work and kids' activities, like none of that's sinful. It's normal in the world's eyes. It's celebrated in the world's eyes. But it, it can keep us from humbling ourselves and saying, okay, I need to figure out how to do this. Now James gets to the last enemy of wholehearted devotion to Jesus. The rest of verse 7. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. I'm sure you'll be bummed, but we can't do a full study on the devil. Uh, But it is a real biblical reality. It is a doctrine that the devil, Satan, Hasatan, is real. And Jesus would say he prowls around looking to destroy us like a roaring lion. Sometimes we might think of satanic stuff being dark, scary, demon possession, you know, heads spinning around on necks and stuff like in the movies. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen. But I would say the Bible teaches that his primary strategy, his primary tool or weapon is lies, is deceit. He is the father of all lies. It's just what he does. Like when he speaks, he speaks his native tongue. He twists the truth. He sows doubt, discord. Did God really say that? He's probably keeping this from you. He he shares false narratives that shatter relationships with God and each other. So instead of a horror movie, instead of heads spinning around, when you think of satanic influence, think, live your truth. The heart wants what the heart wants. I deserve to be happy. God helps those who help themselves. Now, some of those do have a kernel of truth in them, but ultimately, they play out of a deceitful worldview. That is normalized in our society. What, what would happen if you told someone to not live their truth? <laughs> You'd be canceled. Like, this it, is the air that we breathe. Like, what if there is an objective truth outside of our truth? It's not okay to say anymore. This is This is the lie of Satan. And it's not always like this scary, dark stuff. It's like these really sweet, pink, fuzzy lies that are normalized and celebrated by the world. And these lies play to our disordered desires. Like, All of those lies are right in line with our individualistic, like, I do whatever I want. His lies aren't just, like, normal lies, you know? Like, the devil has never, like, brought to mind, like, hey, Elvis is alive. You know, he's never said that to me because I don't care if the devil or if Elvis is alive. He's not the devil. Sorry, that was a weird (laughs) slip. Like, that doesn't play to any of my disordered desires. But a lie that I get all the time is it's all on you. You can't trust anybody. It's all on you. If you mess up or if you trust someone, it's going to come back and destroy you. Subtext, it's not all on God. You're the man. you got to make it happen. So even though that lie keeps me up at night, there's a part of my flesh that wants that to be true. Or You're stuck and caught off, cut off from good. Your comfort is all on you. So eat all the food and watch all the movies to find your own comfort. God's goodness and steadfast love will not follow you all the days of your life. So escape. From your life. Those are just some of the lies that play to my disordered desires. And those lies are celebrated by the world. Like being a man and taking it all on you, like, yeah, go get him, you know, and like treat yourself, you know, is like very common. And everybody's advertising to that desire. Now, James ends this passage where he's talking about these three enemies of wholehearted devotion to Jesus with a string of commands, of imperatives, that are pretty intense. Uh, but my prayer is that we'll hear the good news and grace in all of them. And I want to offer some really practical steps, like if you want to respond, uh, some things that we can do. So look. let me just read again, 7 through 10. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. These are lots of verbs. Submit, resist, draw near. Cleanse, purify, be wretched. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Humble yourselves. So what do we do? How do we hear and respond? (coughs) I want to suggest that we should respond the way my deacon in Big Rapids responded with the word from his doctor. He didn't go out of the doctor's office and in a valiant showdown try to run a marathon to save his life or something like that. He had to calmly, decidedly, directly change his life system and settle into new habits. And I, I know a lot of us are already doing this in different ways, but I believe the most helpful response to this passage, if we're following the flow of, of, of feeling the rebuke and wanting to experience this more grace that God offers, is we settle into rhythms that enable us to respond in obedience to, to all these imperatives, to all these commands that James just went through. How am I practically drawing near to God throughout my days and weeks? In my real life, how am I resisting the devil? How am I resisting the devil's lies throughout my life? I pray the Holy Spirit would just bring to mind ways that we've run after other lovers. allowed a sinful society to normalize greed or lust or disregard for the poor. Ways that we've hurt people around us because of our sinful desires that this would lead us to weep. And my prayer, not just that we'd stay in that place, but it'd be godly grief that produces a repentance, a repentance that turns and acts. Worldly grief is going to feel like condemnation. Like, if you just walk feeling like, walk out of here feeling like the scum of the earth, feeling like hopeless, like nothing I can do makes any difference, you know, how can I face the world the flesh and the devil? What chance? Then that, that's not godly grief. Godly grief Produces a repentance. Godly grief looks like the the younger brother in the prodigal son parable who leaves the slop and moves towards the father. James is so brilliant in his language here because there's both grace and involvement. Like Scripture is so robustly like nuanced when it comes to this whole idea of like grace and works and all that stuff. Because he says it right here: God opposes the proud, but what gives grace to the humble? And then what does he say? Humble yourself. Like, there's, there's something that we need to do to humble ourselves, to put ourselves in a place to receive this grace. I say it all the time. Grace is opposed to earning, not effort. So we're talking about putting out effort. We're talking about, like, earning God's grace. We're not talking about, like, making ourselves righteous in his eyes or anything like that. But there's real practical things we do to obey the Bible it's like the example would be like seeing the sunrise. Like, what can you do to make the sunrise? Nothing. It just happens completely independent of anything you do. But you can wake up early, you can leave your house, you can climb to the top of a hill, and you can wait for it. God draws near to who? Those who draw near to him. Just like the prodigal son. <laughs> the pro- I'm not gonna I'm not gonna qualify it. I just Jamming on the prodigal son a lot this week. Like, he has this repentance, this turning, moving towards the father, but it's so beautiful because he doesn't even have to go all the way. Like, from a distance, the father was looking for him and runs to him. It's just the beautiful picture. It does require him to turn and move and come back. And then with the slightest turn of repentance, the father runs and hugs him and embraces him. You see the godly grief that turns from the slop to experience God's fatherly loving embrace. It's this embrace, the loving embrace of God our Father that, that ultimately over time unites our fractured hearts, like the psalmist says. Mends the pieces back together in the love of God. So the question is, how do we put ourselves just smack in the middle of that embrace? How do we put ourselves at the top of the hill waiting for the sunrise of God's delight for us in Christ? That's where the spiritual disciplines are Habits of grace come into play. We wait for the sunrise of more grace. And I want to submit to you that the, the rule of life that we've been exploring since last fall, it's on our midweek redemption podcast. I encourage you to go give it a, a listen. It's trying to get into these nitty gritty practical things that we can't, we don't necessarily have space for in our Sunday teachings where we're exegeting scripture. But there's some like practical ways where we can take scripture and like live it out or embrace it. But a a rule of life is simply a collection of habits that are meant to to help us kind of build a structure that that we can kind of let the Holy Spirit grow our life on, where we can have an answer to saying, like, how am I drawing near to God today, this week, this month? I'm doing these things. I'm doing these things, and I'm waiting for God to come. How how am I resisting the devil's lies this week? How am I humbling myself today? We can have an answer to these things. I'm not saying there's, like, one way or... You know, one size fits all or anything. This plays out in a lot of different ways, but there are these like ancient, millennial-old practices of Jesus followers that I think are a good place to start before we go reinventing new ones. Because the commands of this passage are at a deep soul level. Like, you know, there's no like super direct action. To, like, humble yourself. Like, that's a, that's a soul level. Submit to God. You know, all these things. They're they're kind of like you know, abstract. So a rule of life, spiritual disciplines, are ways that we bring these abstract commands into really concrete practices. So for example, and I made a grid for this, I think, because grids are my love language. I don't know if you can see that. It's kind of small. But on the one side, it's the spiritual discipline, and then on the other side, it's the the command. It's it's like, this is the thing I'm doing with humility, with open-handedness, in an attempt to hear Scripture and be a doer of the Word. So silence and solitude is probably the most helpful way to ask God, to bring your desires to Him, to even know what your desires are, and create space to hear from God and let Him give it to you. Like I, I play this out because I'm like so high strung, I almost always like go to bed with a novel. I just need something to read so I can fall asleep. And I just had this moment where I was like, God's my father, he can tuck me in. You know, if I if I just lay there, so and now I, I read a psalm and I just lay there and it's like. Lay your, like, lay your hand on me and put me to sleep. And it doesn't work every time or whatever, but like there's been some beautiful moments where it's like, I need to be calmed down and tucked in. Will you do that? Or I can just you know go to a novel. Not that novels are bad. You know what I'm talking about. In my experience, the ability to be alone, to be honest with what you really desire, nothing will make you more aware of the grace you already have in Christ than that. Like the, the Blaise Pascal said, all of men's problems come not being able to sit alone in a room. This isn't saying, like, you, you're earning grace. It's that, like, this whole ocean of grace becomes more available to you the more you see the depth of your sin, the, the disordered desires that are at work in you, and then you give them to God. Or the practice of Sabbath, 24 hours to rest and worship and remember that God is God and I am not. This is humbling ourselves, checking our ambition, resisting the lie that it's all on me, and this is directly over and against how the world operates, which is non, nonstop, more work, onward and upward. Simplicity cuts into our luxuries, our, our evil desires that distract us from a wholehearted devotion to Jesus. You know, what, what happens to our souls if we cut out TV for a month? There are all these things that are not sin, that are okay, but might not be helpful. Or we can embrace, uh, we can embrace resisting our bodily impulses, We can embrace the truth that our bodily impulses are not ultimate. That freedom is not doing whatever feels good to me right now. That is actually the direct opposite of freedom. And we can resist uh, resist that by fasting for a meal or two or three. In order to embrace with our physical bodies that man does not live on bread alone, but on the word of God, that only God can satisfy us. And of course, ultimately, foundationally, time deeply immersed in God's word. Ultimate truth is how we draw near to God, come to see him as he is. Ultimate truth in scripture is how we resist the lies of the devil, like Jesus did when he was tempted in the wilderness. And so the question for you all is, will you live in such a way to receive more grace from our jealous, ferociously loving God God gives more grace. Is there a limit to his grace? His unmerited favor displayed in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus on the cross. He is for you. He calls us away away from the lies and meaninglessness of the world and into more grace, into the life that is truly life. Let me pray. Oh, Father, I praise you for... This ferocious, almost scary love that would so zealously call us to you, I praise you for this love that led you to the ultimate act of love, dying on the cross. I praise you for the God who looks from a distance for us to turn and repent, and I pray that you would uh, just let us hear this good news. Holy Spirit, I pray that there would be true godly grief and repentance that would lead uh, to clear, decided action, to put ourselves unavailable to receive the grace that is that is there for us in Christ. Father, would you just protect us from worldly grief that produces death, from condemnation that would just make us slink out of here in despair, but instead would we feel your call and come back to your loving embrace. In Jesus' name, amen.